0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I am pleased to be talking to Elizabeth Cat about her fantastic new book, Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia, which is just out from Felt Publishing. Um, Elizabeth is one of my favorite authors. Uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for talking to me this morning, Claire. Um, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, so I am a public historian and a writer. I am from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I I fell into history and in doing history um, sort of by accident. I Did my undergraduate training in Latin and Greek. Um, To what end? I had no idea. Um, (laughs) It turned out to be uh, just an end. And so uh, casting about and thinking what I could do with some uh, some of my training, I thought, well, maybe I will give history a try. And maybe public history, which seemed aligned to work in museums in institutions like that. Um, But once I got settled into the graduate program at MTSU doing public history, I absolutely loved it. I loved the questions that it raised about the past and the meaning of the past and the differences between what happened and what people think happened and sort of these battles over, you know, the control of the narrative. Um, And I took off from there. I've been a public historian for about, oh gosh, about 10 years now. Um, I currently live in Stanton, Virginia. I've uh, Pure America is my second book. Now I write what I just generally think about as short nonfiction. So I specialize in writing uh, almost pocket-sized works, serious works of nonfiction that are meant to be read in, in a sitting or two um, that still bring some weighty matters to, to the forefront. And uh, occasionally I do a little bit of work doing history consulting for organizations like the National Park Service. Um,
0: and that's me, well, thank you for for the introduction yeah <laughs> um and i I just i have to say I love your your first book, what you're Getting wrong about Appalachia was kind of like my guide when I moved to this region a few years ago um and I've recently started to get more interested i I studied a little bit of disability studies in grad school, but I've recently started to get more interested in the history of eugenics and this book is a perfect guide to that that history too and and, and especially the ways in which it is it is still it's a living history still um, Could you tell us a little bit about how how you came to write pure america yes so pure america is
1: a book that is very much inspired by my surroundings living here in virginia I live in a city, uh, Stanton, Virginia, that has strong connections to the eugenics movement. It's a city that was home to a state institution called Western State Hospital that performed uh, the second highest number of forced sterilization procedures in the state, and that's between 1927 and 1974. And the longest serving superintendent of Western states, a man named Joseph DeJarnett was also one of the most vocal advocates for eugenic sterilization in Virginia, if not the nation. And so when I first moved to Stanton, I lived just up the road from the former campus of that hospital. And uh, for about two years, I observed, kind of as its neighbor, um, the transformation of this, what was then a a derelict collection of buildings and land, including a very large uh, patient cemetery. So I watched the transformation into what uh, current city boosters call a luxury development, um, a high-end real estate development with a resort-style hotel. Um, There's even more planned. Uh, So I watched as this development, uh, intentionally or not, shed some of its more disturbing associations during that process. And uh, I wondered where that history, which is the history of the eugenics movement, where that past and where those stories might live since they had, uh, in my opinion, been a little bit excommunicated from the new narratives uh, of that institution and why it mattered. And as a historian that is fascinated by memory, um, the idea that it could be taboo in some ways to talk about eugenics in a place with with these strong and obvious connections, that really fascinated me. Um, I began to realize that I lived in a corner of Virginia where the tourism and culture economies heavy hitters, not just this new development with uh, a luxury resort, but also a very prestigious university, the University of Virginia, all these prized mountain landscapes, including a national park. Um, these were all pieces of its eugenic past as well. So I wanted to, to tell some of those stories and connect some of those stories and also raise some questions about what the legacy of eugenics might be. I wanted to think about and and write about what this modern city that I lived in and what these landscapes and, and institutions that I see every day and that I interacted with every day, I wanted to understand how they might be a part of that legacy. Um, and this last element was, I, I think, the most challenging in writing Pure America, finding... A balance between situating eugenics in in a kind of remote past, um, but also trace it forward as as a power and capital building enterprise that is is responsible in some ways, I think, for the physical world that I live in today. And um, as you know, working with the history of medicine, there are many vantage points that we can use to to talk about eugenics and show the legacy of eugenics. We can talk about immigration policies. We can talk about the continuing damage of white supremacy, battles over reproductive justice. We can talk about attitudes towards people with disabilities and the failings of our modern healthcare system. But I also wanted to show and focus on the physical endurance of those ideas in that world as well, because it provided such a unique way of starting to measure just how profoundly eugenics left a mark on this part of Virginia.
0: So, can we just sort of back up a bit, um, and can you tell our listeners what is eugenics? Um, d- define it for us. <laughs> so
1: it's 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 complicated. Let's keep it simple though. Um, eugenics is a a science and philosophy that seeks ways of breeding better humans. Let's be blunt about it. Mm-hmm. This is a breeding science. It is uh, interested in finding uh, the best and brightest people who are thought to have superior genes. Um, and it seeks to reward people who have superior genes for reproducing. For reproducing, And it seeks to punish or curtail people who are thought to have inferior genes um, from, from reproducing. Uh, some people find it helpful to think about eugenics in terms of positive eugenics and negative eugenics. And these are not um, qualifiers or attributes. Positive eugenics means strategies aimed at encouraging people who are thought to have superior genes, encouraging, encouraging them to reproduce. And this might include direct or indirect financial incentives, uh, such as making it easier for them to purchase homes, to fill with those fitter families. Marriage counseling was once considered to be a form of positive eugenics. Negative eugenics, uh, by contrast, is aimed at strategies to limit reproduction among people thought to have those weaker genes. Um, State-mandated sterilization is one of the more recognizable forms of negative eugenics um, and is one that I, I spend a lot of time talking about in my book, but strict immigration control is a form of negative eugenics. Uh, even Jim Crow laws and policing of the color line could be considered negative eugenics. Um, most of what I talk about in, in Pure America are those negative, negative eugenic strategies. Uh, and those tend to take place before World War II. And just to oversimplify a bit, um, American eugenics begins to transition into more positive or, or passive forms of eugenics after World War II. Um, so it's not, it's not surprising. I think um, when we look at the 20th century world that popularized eugenics, that the people thought to have weaker genes, when, you know we're talking about all black and brown and native people. We're talking about immigrants, uh, poor white people, people with, and people with real or, or perceived disabilities. Those are the people that um, were most commonly labeled as, as having those inferior genes. These were people and groups of people that the state often resented helping survive. They were blamed for societal problems like crime. And they were groups of people that the state had a long-standing interest in controlling. Eugenics allowed the state to mm-hmm. medicalize this desire for control, to frame it as a matter of public interest for the sake of the physical, the mental, and even the the economic health of future generations. Um, A really good example of this, uh, particularly in the South and particularly in Virginia, where where I'm writing about, is the transformation of uh, those so-called one-drop rules from prevailing custom to hard science. So where white Southerners had long believed that any trace of non-white ancestry was sufficient to quote-unquote contaminate white bloodlines, In eugenics, they found what they considered uh, a better scientific truth for their beliefs.
0: And you sort of, and you say this in the book, I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, that eugenics was a really um, efficient way to kind of just take racism up and package it up as a form of science, as as scientific um, following the Civil War. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so the, the the beauty of eugenics for, for, for acolytes of eugenics um, was that it allowed sort of these uh, good white middle class people, and, and this is particularly true in the South, to look at their longstanding beliefs about race and, and also class as well and, and gender and to medicalize them as a new form of disability. Um, so it, it, it's an affirming science that basically takes a a worldview that was very common, very, very, you know, held, held by, by many people during this time. Um, and, and infuses it with, with scientific truth. Eugenics was incredibly popular amongst wide segments of the population in the early 20th century. It was a highly participatory science, um, the, the. The strongest advocates for eugenics were very clever in framing um, eugenics as is sort of like a, a democratic, participatory public science that everyone could take part in, and everyone could share the benefits of. Uh, and they encouraged people to do things like fill out family genetic questionnaires and 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 uh, volunteer their medical histories to to be sent to these uh, clearinghouses. These nerve centers for the eugenics movement, they participated in things like fitter family contests where parents would bring young children to be measured according to new standards in child development. There was a lot of pop, pop culture products um, that had eugenic themes. So movies, for example, that had, you know, oh, no, I, I marrying my sweetheart has weak genes. What do I do? You know, things, <laughs> things like that that were just, you know, just just uh, a part of everyday life for people. Um, and, and, and highly sort of ex- accepted as a, as a progressive science.
0: And uh, so are, are genetic, our tests like 23 and me and those kinds of things? Are those eugenic that <laughs> that we, that we see today?
1: I would, yeah, I would say so. I, I, I do open this can of worms in the book to some degree, um, this idea, this eugenic truth that who we are is, is written into our genes to some, some degree. I think the the difference between genetic testing, like 23 and me, um, and what eugenicists belie- believed in the past is, is that now it's, 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 it's um, acceptable and, and even sort of, f- um, desired for, for white people to, to take a genetic test and, and sort of, um, mm-hmm scrutinize their their uh, their data for non-white ancestries it adds to uh, allure a personal mystery about themselves um, certainly in some cases when we talk about um, white people claiming native ancestries um, there's a long precedent for um, for for trading on those kinds of myths in very very specific ways um, that are quite, quite shocking if you if you think about how those how how eugenicists thought about things like blood quantum so yes i i do i do tend to think that um commercial dna testing uh is 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 to some degree trading on some um some some darker aspects of you eugenic thought whether or not um, people are conscious about that um, certainly one of the the things that I raise in the book too is this sort of weird thing that happens amongst um, sort of hardcore white supremacists who like to scrutinize their their DNA tests to prove or just dispro- you know to prove that they are hundred percent white and sort of the researchers who have who have you know gotten into those communities and and tried to think about ways that their findings have challenged or not there's their they widely held beliefs about race and, and their own race and, and, and how race functions and, you know, in the broader world. Um, so I have never taken one. (laughs) I don't intend, I don't intend to take one. Um, and certainly there's, there's, there's all kinds of questions, which I don't even get into, but about how, um, sort of like the state might, might access personal data related to, uh, health and, and genetics and and things like, like that, like that. Um, So yeah, I I think that eugenicists of the past would be overwhelmed to see that technology. They would probably be shocked at the way, the casual way that we use it, um, but they possibly might have also liked the way that we are using it to affirm certain things about ourselves and who we are.
0: Elizabeth, my point wasn't to kind of get you to devolve your genetic history, <laughs> but, um, but, but really to, to kind of point to, to that book's argument that Jeanette that you know eugenics isn't past, it's still alive and well today. and um, one thing you're really clear about in the book is you you write that the story you tell is very much not a secret history. It's not a hidden history. You, um, you know the the it, it it was very it's very much a history that's sort of in plain sight and archived and established institutions, um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. So, I mean, why uh, some of this history is pretty shocking? Why why isn't it secret? Why isn't it hidden? So I wanted to be
1: explicit that this is not a secret or hidden history for a couple of reasons. Most obviously, um, because the origins and, and applications of American eugenics is incredibly well documented by historians, by legal scholars, by individuals working in many, many medical fields, by disability rights advocates, by reproductive rights advocates, by, a, by journalists, by organizations, it is something that we know a great deal about. Its legacy takes us into fuzzy territories. And what I mean by that is, you know, these, these profound questions about what does it mean to live in a country where this, this history happened, those are, those are on um, more subjective territory. But in terms of understanding these ideas, their applications, where they originate from to what um, end they were put to, we have some incredible material um, on, on that past, uh, at our fingertips. Um, second, eugenics was never a secret. Um, forced sterilization was never a secret. Eugenics was incredibly popular among white Americans, and there is broad support for population control at the turn of the century and beyond. This is not something that people are thinking about in secret. This is not, um, Something that people are 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 ashamed that they're that this that states are ashamed that they're doing. They're very proud that they're doing um, this work, and so uh, what happens is after World War II, some of that enthusiasm is is paled by associations between Nazi Germany. And the eugenics movement and eugenic ideas. And so eugenics becomes more of a more of of something that is encouraging reproduction rather than eliminating reproduction of the unfit. But that doesn't mean that when we were practicing these things, um, and again, that's oversimplifying it a bit that they were done in the shadows to any any degree. Throughout the years, from you know 1927 to 1974, which is sort of the accepted dates for the eugenics movement in Virginia, there have been m- legal challenges um, from people who uh, were victims of eugenics, from their advocates, from people working in um, sympathy with people who were thought to have disabilities or or who were targeted by the eugenics movement, um, and so it's. It's if we call this a secret history, we also um, erase to some degree the efforts of people to undo some of the harm that the eugenics movement has done. Um, this is not a secret history in the sense that most of the resources I used for this book are expertly cataloged, meticulously organized by this by state institutions like the University of Virginia Libraries and Archives, the University, the Library of Virginia. Um, it's the, the amount of material that is available to, to study these topics is is almost unreal, and it's over, almost um, too overwhelming. I think what is a little bit truer is that, um, you know, people do feel uncomfortable discussing this history. It's history that doesn't make for easy consumption. Um, it's hard to, there's, no, there's there's no redeeming arc to this kind of history, except that um, we, we force these realities upon fewer people than we did in the past. Um, but there's, there's no, you know, arc of progress to, to these kind of stories. The, the enthusiasm for which people participated in eugenic ideas um, implicates a, a wide variety of Americans and, and American leaders. Um, it's, and as you say, the, it's also a, a philosophy that still circulates today, and, and um, we like, in the moment we're in this global pandemic, we don't have to look particularly hard to see the shadow of eugenics almost everywhere um, when we talk about whose lives are expendable, um, who has to work, who, who um, you know, right now we're having sort of this like exciting moment, but also stark moment where we're, we're thinking about who are the first people who get to be vaccinated against the coronavirus, and so... All of these all of these um, I, I ideas about who is is who whose lives have value in this society have never gone out of circulation and we're still debating them today um, and you could sort of slice any 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 sort of current event and, and not have to look particularly hard to find the shadows of those questions that I introduced in, in 19 you know 1924 for example Um I decided to focus exclusively on eugenics um, for this book because there there's 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 fragments of the story in, in the first book I wrote that's just more of a, a general commentary about Appalachian history. And by far and away, um, those 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 short references to the eugenics movement in, in my first book got I think the most engagement from people. I, I got emails from people wanting to know more. Um, as a historian, sometimes it, it's hard, even as a public historian, it's hard to gauge um, how much the public is is plugged into these things from the from the past. certainly, if um, you if there's something about your identity that makes you um, you know highly conscious of these uh, of these 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 episodes and, and this philosophy and the science and the continuation of it you're going to know more about it than, than someone else. But, uh, I, I kind of like had to stand back from that and think, well, maybe, maybe there's just, maybe this is something that we need to talk about more, um, and, and, and do it in, in sort of this, this way that, that makes it very local, uh, for me to make it a story not only about uh, a people, but a place.
0: Yeah. And, and and so the way that you do that is through, telling or or trying to tell, trying to reconstruct, because it, it it wasn't easy to do, despite all of the records, the history of Western State Hospital. Um and so could you could you tell us a little bit about um, you kind of start with a, a figure who is um who's key if anybody has read any any of um history any of the the kind of canonical histories of eugenics. Um you start with a, a a person who's really key in those histories, um, and and then connect that to 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 Western states. So, so tell us um, who is Carrie Buck, and then how does her life story sort of fit into your book?
1: Um, Carrie Buck, who is also called uh, Carrie Eagle and and Carrie Dedimor, um, was a woman from Charlottesville, born at the turn of the century. Uh, who is placed into foster care as a young girl um, after her mother was institutionalized as as feeble minded in foster care. Her foster parents treated her more like a maid than um, an adopted child. And when she was 17 years old, she was raped by the nephew of her foster mother and became pregnant. Hoping to avoid the scandal of her pregnancy, her foster parents sought to have her institutionalized at the same facility where her mother lived and they were successful. Her institutionalization um, happened to coincide with a moment when the national eugenics movement was very aggressively pushing for a law that would legalize forced eugenic sterilization nationwide. And Carrie became their test case. Um, and this test case eventually was heard by the Supreme Court. And she became the first person sterilized in Virginia in accordance with the the newly affirmed law. And like you said, I wanted to start with Carrie because uh, I think that um, if if anybody knows anything about this history and and connect it to a figure, it it might be Carrie Buck, um, whose name is is on the Supreme Court case, Buck v. Bell, um, which has not been overturned, by the way. It's still technically the law of the land. Um, Carrie was not at Western state. She was institutionalized and sterilized at a facility called the Lynchburg colony for epileptics and feeble minded, um, which is in Lynchburg, Virginia, about maybe about 90 miles away from us. It was one of the state facilities where, um, people could be, could be sterilized after the law was affirmed. Um, But the person who provided expert witness um, in her court case was a man named Joseph DeJarnet, who was the longest serving superintendent of Western state and uh, a very vocal advocate for eugenic sterilization. So when we think about and when I when I started thinking about eugenics, and I think this is this is maybe true of other people as well. When we think about eugenics and we think about forced sterilization, I found myself and found myself, when I talked about this in the past, um, when I was doing my training as a historian, for example, I would foreground the idea that advocates of eugenics thought people like Carrie Buck were unfit, unfit to reproduce, unfit to have mm-hmm. full participation in society, unfit to control their own bodies. Um, but understanding how Joseph to thought about people like Carrie Buck, and I can see this through the testimony that he provided and also his, his you know, his writings about um, people at his own institution who were like Carrie Buck, As you start to understand that men like Joseph DeJarnett did believe that people like Carrie Buck were fit for something. And that was to provide compliant manual labor in perpetuity under supervision of the state and to do so, insured against pregnancy by a forced operation. And so that became what I wanted to foreground in this book. What these advocates of eugenics, like Joseph Jarnett, who is, you know, um, connected to this, this site in my neighborhood, what they thought these people were actually fit for. Um, because eugenics is always building towards a future goal. But what, what happens to people targeted? Um, what, happened to, what happened to them in their present? Um, when the state gave itself license to label these increasingly large groups of its citizens as unfit, what did that mean to them? And what did that mean to the people who sought to control them um, beyond subjecting them to an unwanted operation? So, for example, um, Carrie Buck in 1927, after her operation, she was paroled to a family who used her as a domestic worker, so much like the arrangement that she endured as a foster child. I think she was offered something like $5 a month, along with room and board, to essentially provide unlimited domestic labor to a family who um, were, were part of this arrangement because they explicitly sought out a young woman who had been institutionalized um, and who was thought might do well outside of it. And if she misbehaved, she could be sent back. Um, So when I think about, when I came to, to, to think about Western state more intimately, labor was always at the forefront of my mind. Um, at Western state, institutionalized workers provided a key source of labor supervised by Joseph DeJarnett, um, who once referred to his patients as nothing more than plows, as harrows. Um, they provided an enormous amount of agricultural labor, which sustained a, a large growing operation at Western State for over four decades. They provided domestic work. Um, they helped construct and maintain many institutional buildings. And so to circle back, you um, I began to see eugenics from this vantage point, intertwined with the history of labor and the history of capitalism, um, in the sense that like De Jarnet and, and, and people like him um, saw the utility in creating a permanent underclass of sterilized workers whose labor was devalued um, because it was labor that was thought to be an exchange for a therapeutic or a corrective influence. And so that's something that, that I thought about a lot when considering Western State, particularly considering this transformation that took place from a former state facility to a, a privately owned enterprise that is valued in part according to the work um, that patients helped build and, and maintain.
0: So can you tell us um, a bit about the history of Western State? Just um, kind of uh, trace, trace the different. There are several eras, right, in this history. Yeah, so I, I like to tell the history
1: of Western State um, from the perspective of uh, the <laughs> the narrative of, of the facility that uh, is talked about and is not talked about in you know in twenty twenty, um, Stanton, Virginia. So the the Western State that. Um, we talk about now, now that the site has been transformed into this new, um, modern facility is, is the, 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 earlier history of the facility, this period where, um, there was a more optimistic time in the history of psychiatric medicine when efforts focused on, um, humane treatment of patients, possibility of care, or at least some healing respite, Um, this very interesting moment when architecture and medicine came into alignment through a kind of acknowledgement that one's surroundings could affect mental health and mood and that these pleasant and beautiful surroundings had um, a healing potential. And this is, this is perhaps even more true in a facility like Western state due to its, uh, its proximity to the Blue Ridge mountains. So, this is the history that that uh, is foregrounded now. This um, association between a figure named um, Dr. Francis Stribling, who was um, an, an early superintendent before the Civil War, and his association with an architect named um, Thomas Blackburn, who was uh, thought to be a protege of Thomas Jefferson, and um, their relationship in terms of um, constructing many of the hospitals. Earliest institutional buildings that are still that are still standing. Um, uh, the the facility is thought to be parts of the facility are thought to be a very sublime representation of this marriage between architecture and uh and 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 psychiatric medicine. A, a bit like if if anybody is familiar with um the career of Thomas story Kirkbride, these uh, the creation of sort of like humanity within architecture for people confined to. Uh, facilities like Western States. Um, of course, of course that, this, that that's, uh, you know, even that is a, a tad bit optimistic. It's true that um, a, a great architect designed those buildings, but we also have a history of enslavement at Western state. We also have Western state it is a segregated hospital. Uh, it only served, white patients uh until virginia was was desegregated in the 1960s um gradually um we we begin to move we we begin to lose, lose that optimism somewhat um which eventually sees us at the turn of the century in a moment where communities like stanton um small small towns are sort of chafing and are chafing under the weight of having to financially support um, patients and individuals within their community that can't support themselves. Um, institutionalization allows localities to relieve themselves of some of the financial burden of these individuals by institution- institutionalizing them uh, <clears> at <throat> remote, somewhat remote facilities. And so um, the tenure of Joseph de who is associated with Western state from around 1905 to, to World War II um, is, is, is a period of institution hyper-institutionalization of confining more and more and more individuals um, and the state reducing and reducing and reducing the expenditures they're willing to make um, to, to offset the care of these individuals. Um, and that influenced Joseph DeJarnet's philosophies about eugenics, about coerced and forced sterilization. It influenced his ideas about institutional labor and his beliefs that patients should be put to work um, at the institution to, to offset the cost of their care and, and confinement. Um, and so when I'm writing the history of Western states, I'm most occupied by, by this period, the, the DeJarnet um, period, and it, I, I, I have to say, it is an overwhelming thing to experience. Um, as, as a historian, the archival records for this period are, are immense. Um, one of the most, one of the largest institutional collections I've ever seen, um, p- largely due to the fact that Joseph de Jarnett was a meticulous, record keeper um to the almost to the point of obsession and so uh on on one hand it's very good because there's there's a generous record left behind on the other hand it's you know it's quite overwhelming to to kind of have to pour through all of those documents and to and to understand uh you know what is coming in what is going out who's coming in and who's going out of these facilities um the, the, this is also occurring at it's sort of like the, the 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 time when the institution itself, um, in terms of land holdings, is 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 about at its peak, and its popu- patient population is about at its peak as well. Um, the very short version of the remainder of, of Western States history is that it it like other facilities um, in Virginia nationwide began a movement towards deinstitutionalization in the nineteen. 19- Late 1950s and early 1960s, and the facility started to reduce its land holdings. Um, it moved to a different campus, and then a different campus again before it ceased operations entirely in that parcel. Um, in the 19 In the 1970s, and then the structure that we call Western State, that I call Western State, the original campus became a men's medium security prison for a few years. And then it became a derelict collection of buildings that were controlled by the city of Stanton. And in 2006, I believe, uh, the title was transferred to modern property developers who have ushered in this new phase for the the campus as uh, a modern uh, real estate development with um, additional amenities like the hotel and resort.
0: And how? And um, you you spent a night there, is that right? <laughs>
1: I did. I've been to the site many times. Um, They, so, um, in the last two, so, so from about 2008, um, until, until about two years ago, it was, it was primarily private real estate. So when they uh, recirculated the buildings, they were, they went to private owners, um, and there is a small, um, sort of a condo community at the site. And then, then a couple of years ago, um, the, the hotel, the centerpiece, I think that the way that they think about it opened, um, a, a boutique hotel is what they call it that's in the former administration building. So one of the oldest um, institutional buildings on the campus and definitely one of the buildings that has this nice architectural pedigree um, that people around here love to talk about. And so um, on a couple of occasions, I went to kind of hang out and have coffee or, or some food in, in the little restaurant it's there. I've made several trips to the, the cemetery. So this is, I mean, which is a whole separate kind of issue. Um, and the fact that there are between two and 3000 former patients buried in, uh, anonymous graves behind this development. And so, um, in terms of, of, uh, Giving this place a, a, a new lease on life, I think, is, is always going to be complicated by the fact that people are are buried and interred on the site. But yes, I spent the night at the hotel, and it's a great hotel. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't really say too many, ter- I, you know, I can't say anything bad about it. It was architecturally, uh, the restoration was was magnificent. Um, they're not, I mean, for a historic hotel, they're not particularly heavy handed with the history. There's like minor interpretive um, touches here and there there's you know like blueprints and 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 former you know sketches architectural sketches on the walls and and things like that it's it's you know architectural architecturally focused interpretation um and and it's i mean it's great it's you know i i recommend when people come to stay in town i, I recommend it to them um because it's comfortable and it's it's
0: nice and it's interesting but, and it's not and it's and the history is, is supposed to be tasteful right it's not like a ghost tour or no, something
1: no not at all and if anything you know i i like i i am not a fan of, of what they've done <laughs> i will say that but um you know i also can't blame them in some ways for or fault them for taking this approach because i think that that they would argue um and and, and i i would you know be hard pressed to disagree with them that um, there, there, there has been a very morbid history attached to this site. And, you know, if people outside of this locality knew Western state at all, they they would know the, the eugenics past. They would, you know, there would be, there's ghost hunting sites and things of that nature that exist. Um, there's photography sites that had focused on sort of like the, the derelict, the previously derelict architecture and sort of like the spooky elements of this. So there, in some ways they're working against that, and trying to balance out, um, that perception with what they want to do with what they want to do now to create this new, um, a, a site with a new identity that is, uh, maybe in their minds a bit more balanced, but no, there's you know, it's, it's, it's very much architecturally focused. It is, um, supposed to be something that. Um, connects to the the broader architectural themes and identity of the city. And that's why it was um, important to me that I give uh, Western States eugenic past, you know, an architectural reading. It it was a bit sort of risky um, because obviously the person who, who reads this book and picks up this book might not you know, be able to visualize what I'm talking about or, or put themselves to, to sort of uh, feel the site in the way that I do experiencing it every day. But it was, you know, it, it, this is something that's important to the people around me. Um, I want them to, to connect with different, different layers of this site. And, and if, archi- if they want to speak the language of architecture, then, then that is what I wanted to give them a reading of to talk about these different ways that eugenics manifests in, in the way that the, the, the physical site has been arranged, just as there was uh, a period where moral medicine, you know, guided this beautiful architecture that is well-preserved and that we love to talk about. I, I believe that, that it's possible to see the eugenic past in that architecture too. If you are someone who is, is interested in paying attention to things that patients built and provided institutional labor Patients designed, um, patients maintained, patients provided the work and care um, and attention that, that allowed those structures to be so well-preserved into the present.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about that? How did the promotional material at, at the inn that you stayed in match up with the research you were doing for your book? Because you spent a night there while you were working on the book, Right.
1: Yeah. Um. So, so my my publisher Anne uh, came down, and um, you know, my partner and Anne and I we we all set out to go and spend the night at, at the hotel. And you know, I I'd, I'd been visiting the site for quite a while prior to that, even inside and kind of you know like sulking around the cemetery a lot. Um. And I I. I I it was exactly what I thought it was was going to be. It, it it was a beautiful place that leans heavily on um the architectural pedigree and what the architecture says about this period of moral medicine that existed under this specific uh superintendent. Nothing really nothing really less, nothing really more. Um you have to understand that in Virginia, an associate, even like the most tangential association with Thomas Jefferson, is just worth its weight in gold. So, of course, they're going to lean heavily on the idea that this was a; these were structures, in part, designed by proteges of Thomas Jefferson. This was a period of optimism and in, in psychiatric medicine. Uh, I think some promotional material used the phrase "resort style asylum." You know, so, so that was you know that's what what that's the history that they're leaning into at the site. Um, I, I, it left, you know, it, there's a, and so there's a 100 year gap in that history, which I was very interested in. And, um, you know, obviously for, for what I'm writing about, because that encompasses the eugenics movement, but it raises so many questions about um, layers of the past and, you know, what can we say happened in, in this time period? If, if it's not, you know, does this have, does this have a story? That reflects this this era, if if you're not telling it. So those those very subjective questions like that, I was interested in in seeing if I could find some um, resolution or, or or waypoints to sort of think about those a little bit more. And and that's why I just kept going back and back and back to to the cemetery because I think you know in, in some respects. Um, if you want to find out what happened in that 100-year gap, you sort of have to start there in the cemetery because at least you can say that that people died there and were buried there. Um, and unfortunately, that's that is, it's still, to my to my knowledge, I think is 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 part of the 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 campus that has uh, been marked off limits. So I don't know what the future holds for that, um, but. You know, it's it's there's 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 very little that anybody can do about any of this because it's a it's a private enterprise that controls it. Um, they control the narrative of it. Uh, they control um, the, the the identity of it. And and um, as much as you know, I I dislike things like that. I do have to admit it, it raises some interesting questions about um, the identity of of places and 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 how the past uh, becomes you know tourism and branding and things like that. And the
0: Jarnet, that period's in the gap. That's just, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, there's nothing, there's, there's, there's nothing about the eugenics movement that is really interpreted or acknowledged at the site now. Um, It's hard to, I mean, I, I keep going back and saying like, I understand why they, they, they don't, um, but but at the same time, it is the truth. There's 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 nothing about the eugenics period or DeJohnette's tenure that is really um, acknowledged at the site today. And again, that's why I wanted to inject some architectural history into uh, my interpretation of you know in, into my interpretation of Western State Story to to talk about the fact that um, patients. Did build some of the institutional buildings um, and maintain some of the institutional buildings, and there, you know, the marks of their labor are all throughout the facility, even as it stands
0: today. And it's it's not just architect- architectural history that you draw from. I'd like to talk a little bit about, like, sort of what are the sources that allow you to read the buildings in the way that you do, and to read them so differently from the way that the the promoters do, right? So you're obviously inspired by the physical environment, true inspiration from your public history training. Um, but this book also, you know, and I hope for anybody who, I hope, I hope you all will, I hope listeners will pick it up. Um, and then if you get more interested in eugenics, there is a legit um, <laughs> list of secondary sources in the back. Um, and as you said, the archival research was, was extensive. Um, So I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about what were were some of your sources for inspiration for for your interpretation of um, Western state history?
1: So the, I mean, one of the funniest things that happened is when I moved to Stanton. I, I I um so I'm not from this area, but my my partner is, and um we did we did the thing where you know we he wanted to move back home, and I was like, yes, let's do it. And he was like, well, we can't live like right in my hometown. and We have to live up the road a little bit. And I was like, okay, 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 that's good. And um, I drove past Western State the first time, and it looked so good. I mean, there's like bustling activity and all this kind of stuff, and I was like, "That is the Western State, right? People are going to live there." That's so strange to me. And so I started reading, um, y- you know, as much. I uh, started reading, you know, the history, anything that had to do with the history of Western State. Um, and I'd read, you know, quite a bit about the history of eugenics when I was training as a historian. And I just returned to those texts because I felt like I, you know, my mind was was starting to slip a little bit. That there was like maybe a different asylum in town where all this bad stuff happened mm-hmm. um, that, that people still were allowed to talk about it. And so I read, you know, I just like devoured anything that Gregory Michael door had written um, and Paul Lombardo had written there. Two of the most, um, you know, foremost experts on the American eugenics movement in Virginia, um, both uh, do incredible work. And in, in terms of understanding the legal history of the eugenics movement um, and, I I I just returned to so many secondary texts that I'd read as a, as a student and, and and kept going and going and going um just because just because I felt that that si- you know that silencing effect of living in this place and feeling like I I you know this w- this was like forbidden knowledge um You know, and and that's just my perception that I'm not saying that the the, the city was sending off like clear, you know, strong Mm coercive signals that we couldn't talk about this. It was just sort of like I felt that trepidation. And and so I responded to it by by doing um, more and more reading. And, you know, again, I I have to say that the the library of Virginia just did a you know, they have a phenomenal job organizing most of the records of, of all these state institutions and there's five in Virginia um, and you know the records are are meticulously organized the finding aids are incredible um it's it it i mean you could spend you could spend uh, years kind of understanding all of all of those documentations um i relied on um Scholars like Katrina Powell, when I, I looked further afield and started to examine what might be happening in terms of the eugenics past um, within the, the the Shenandoah Valley, the, the wider Shenandoah Valley, particularly um, some of the history, the eugenic past that that is uh, reflected in, in sort of the history of the national park sites in the area and, and the displacement of mountain families, uh, Sue Curl also wrote some fantastic uh, material about the, the the regional eugenic past um, outside of Stanton. And I, I have to say another thing that was really um, inspiring, you know, in terms of the history being written was not actually about eugenics at all per se, but you know, I'm formulating the ideas for this book as the debates about Charlottesville's Confederate monuments are taking place in 2015 you know 2016 and, and beyond. And I'm seeing, you know, the questions that people in Charlottesville, my colleagues and, and, and friends and acquaintances in Charlottesville, the, the things that they're debating about, they're, the questions um, they're asking about their past and the terms that, that they want to know their past, that these new terms they want to know their past on. And, um, you know, I drive into Charlottesville and, and sort of catch up with people. And then, you know, I, I drive back to Stanton and, and think like, why? Why it would be so great if there if there was you know sort of like these if there could be a space where we could ask similar questions about the local past here as well. And so I was very much inspired by this sort of community led public history efforts that were taking place in Charlottesville in the wake of you know the the opening the decision about what to do about the two Confederate monuments in that city. Um, and so all of the all of these sort of things are are, are kind of collating in the way that um, structurally, I, I organized the book and and why I wanted to anchor it um, so firmly to to the physical environment, too.
0: Well, you synthesize just an amazing amount of material, but you make it look easy. Um, and so the book is just such a joy to read. Um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to make sure that we get to the end. So, um, tell us how the ledger book from Western State Hospital relates to the book's conclusion.
1: <laughs> so I the ledger book was such sort of a powerful I, I maybe metaphor um, that I held in my mind because again, you have to understand that Joseph de Jarnett uh, is a hyper-enthusiastic collector of records everything goes down in a ledger book, whether it's how many apples he eats or how many you know, patients were working in the field, how many pounds of cabbage, how many pounds of pork his farms produced. Everything is meticulously organized. And so I, I thought, um, w- what would a, a ledger book of Western State look like now? How, how do we value um, things like the... The, the cost of, of the hu- human labor that it took to, to maintain a physical site like this, how much is, you know, how much is the land worth because um, laboring patients sloped it, and made it um, useful for farming, things like that. Um, and most emphatically the, the ledger book comes into play because in 2015, the state of Virginia authorized um, reparations or compensation for survivors of eugenic sterilization um, up to $25,000 for survivors or their uh, estate. Um, And they did, you know, that's an actuarial decision, I think, about it, because in Virginia, unlike some other states, um, the peak of eugenic sterilization happened in the 1930s and 1940s, and so I, I think the state of Virginia was banking on the fact that many of the people who were targeted by these sterilization campaigns were deceased, and so I think it, I think it paid out 28 claims um, to date. To date, when that book was written, um, so that was current as of last year. And um, when you think about it, it's it's such a paltry amount for that 50-year history. Um, And I I don't have any sort of grand pronouncements about what um, justice looks like in this scenario. I think certainly the way that Virginia managed its compensation program and the way that North Carolina managed its compensation program has lessons should another state uh, choose to do something similar. And, and I do hope that um, California, which had the most um, forced sterilization performed, about 20,000, certainly goes down a road where they can bring some kind of financial justice to, uh, to living survivors of eugenic sterilization. They would also incorporate elements of racial justice as well. But I, I think that um, it's it's just important to acknowledge that justice in this case was not done and can never be done. We can never live in a world where something like Western State and a person like Joseph Dejarnet and a campaign like Virginia's eugenics program didn't happen. Um, and so we will always be unbalanced in that in that respect. And I think that is a humane note to end on for, for my book, certainly because what eugenicists were ultimately chasing was some kind of balance that they could achieve, knowing that mm-hmm. the fruits of their labor was always going to be denied to somebody else, a future generation that would, um, y- you know, be born and, and find the, the slate wiped clean of all the debts that. That quote unquote unfit people inflicted on society. So I, I just I'm saying this is me saying that it's not been that balanced. It will never be balanced. Um, and, and if it starts with an acknowledgement of that, then that, then
0: that's a fine place to start. I think. It's a it's a really it's a beautiful ending, and it um it does leave it, it to me. It does leave open the question of of what is to be done, next. Um. You, you know it it's it, it, whether whether the end of the book is a call for more or better reparations. For present-day criminal justice or labor reforms, for changes to the way we do historical preservation, or all of those things. Academia, you know, universities run themselves the way we teach medical students. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that that was what I got. That it was all of those. That that the implication was all of those things. Um, and the fact that they're connected too. Um,
1: yeah, I, I mean, the the, the most important. Achievement for this book is just showing all the, the the subtle, but also sometimes very obvious ways that all these systems of power are are connected. Um, certainly, I, I, I mean, I don't mind saying that I think I think one thing to do is just make sure that people don't die because they don't have access to basic health care. Um, we are in a moment where some people might argue that uh, our moment is a moment of passive, passive eugenics, where we don't have the positive eugenics of the past, and we, we don't have the negative eugenics of the past, but we have a system where we allow the, pe- the, the people that the state cannot assign a value to. We, we allow them to suffer and die through indifference and through rationing of resources. Um, and, and so th- to, to resist that is, um, you know, a way, a way forward and would, would certainly help people's lives uh, immeasurably. Um, Especially, you know, I, 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 we don't even have to have this conversation because we see what is going on, you know, um, with the pandemic and the way that people have, have suffered and the way people are concerned about, um, their health, their care, and, and, and knowing that they could get sick, but, but maybe even worse for some people is, is, is that they could go, go bankrupt because they got sick. Um, that they don't have control over their bodies because they don't have control, Um, because the resources that they need to, 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 to take care of themselves and to make choices have been rationed away and, and for no, for no good reason, um, either. And so I, I think that, you know, when I talk about this book, um, not knowing when I wrote it, that it would arrive in this moment. Yes, that is, I, you know, I'm happy to say that that is, that is my lesson. Let people make decisions about their own health and their own bodies,
0: well, it, it, is, it is definitely, it's an applied history. And it, the fact that it applies to a historical moment that you had no idea was coming is sort of all the more remarkable. Um, okay, we really have taken up a lot of your time. So um, I'm just going to ask you one more question. What mm-hmm. are you working on next?
1: Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my, I'm a person, my mental health and my mood is so variable from day to day to day. I, I'm basically getting through one day at a time. Um, like, like a lot of people I've been very fortunate to be able to make a a small income from writing. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to, to sustain that. Um, just, just being truthful. Um, there's so many, you know, there's so many kind of decisions and and realities that need to be recalibrated. Um, we're going to lose an incredible amount of creative talent now. And, and, um, you know, even even if I'm not among those, those people, certainly the the environment in which I try to produce work will be so much different and and so much um, more shallow. In that respect, losing community and losing resources and and losing that uh, that spark um, is is going to be something that I don't know if I can adjust to. So I'm playing it I'm playing it by ear, and um, hopefully better things are on the horizon. But um, we'll just have to see.
0: Well, I hope so because yeah. I certainly want to hear more from you. I want to read thank more. You. Um, uh, I, I guess I, I have to wrap up now. So, so thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me.